you've been here for a while, you know that we consider ourselves a sort of teaching hospital when it comes to ch doing church ministry. That is, we love to help young people develop their skills and, and grow as, as ministers of the gospel of Christ. And today is one of those days when we're going to be practicing that. Kevin Sheehan is going to be coming and uh, bringing the word to us this morning. There's a lot I can say about Kevin. He grew up in the mission field, uh, primarily in the Philippines. Uh, he's a graduate of Wheaton College. He is currently uh, pursuing his Master of Divinity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's also serving here as a pastoral intern. He uh, is over the areas of, uh, he works with our graduate students and he also works with our Alpha program. So there's a lot of things I could say about him, but what I really want you to hear from me today is that Kevin, in my time that I spent with him, I have seen that Kevin is a real man of character. He is a man who is honest before God and before others. He has a love for Jesus and a love for his church that is contagious. And one of my favorite things about him is he loves to see people come to Jesus. So Kevin, please come up and share God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. Thank you that it points us to your son. And I pray that this morning you would open our minds to understand it, that you would open, open our hearts to receive it, and that you would use our hands to do your will. Lord, hear our hearts. Speak what is true. Amen. So as Andy mentioned earlier, today marks the first Sunday in a season called Advent. And uh, Advent is a season that Christians have celebrated throughout the world for centuries. And it's a season of preparation for Christmas. And people celebrate it in different ways. Some churches this, this month will have Advent candles that they'll light, or there will be families that have Advent calendars as a countdown to Christmas. Uh, last year was my first Advent here at EBF. And, and one thing that churches pretty consistently do is sing Christmas carols in preparation for Christmas. And I had my world rocked by our worship team's renditions of my favorite carols. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're going to find out. But it's this time of preparation. It's this time of waiting. And you know, I, I am not the kind of person who likes to wait for things. Um, I was that kid who would bite into the Tootsie Roll Pop to get to the good stuff inside, right? I, I, I don't like waiting. I do my online shopping at Amazon because they have two-day shipping. I just go to one place and get it delivered and I'm done. But as impatient as I am, I think the idea of Advent, the idea of waiting and preparing for Christmas is important for a couple reasons. First of all, I think it's really easy for us to forget how big of a deal the first Christmas was. In many ways, the Old Testament, the, the first half of our Bibles, are about this waiting for God to do something about the world, for God to fix the world. Genesis, the very first book, has our ancestors rebelling against God, and they're deceived by a serpent, and God says to them that their descendant is going to crush the head of that serpent. Then God promises Abraham that through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Then he promises David that his descendant would rule as king forever. There are dozens of promises like this through the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Andy read during the call to worship 
a passage from Isaiah that talks about the yoke of oppression being broken, about this coming king that's going to come and establish justice. And by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were hoping that the Messiah would come and deliver them from Roman oppression. But of course, God did things in his own way, in his own time. And in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere, a child was born. God himself, the creator of the universe, was born as a human child. But we discover that this child didn't just come to save the Jewish people. He came to deliver all of us, anyone who trusts in him, to deliver us from our sins. So during Advent, we wait with them, we prepare with them to properly celebrate this amazing truth. But there is another reason to celebrate Advent together. I realize that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. It already happened. We're not waiting for that anymore. But we are waiting for something, right? I mean, maybe it's just me, but does anyone else feel like the story isn't over yet? Does it feel like, you? oh yeah, God's fixed everything. This is the kind of world where everything's at peace and we're all happy and everything's great. No. We're still waiting for God to fix things, for good. We can see the evil around us. We feel it in our hearts. We've been reading about it as Jason has been taking us through Romans. Something is still wrong. And is is there any hope that it's going to get better? Yes, there is. And here's why. It's because Jesus is coming back. There's a second coming. We have something to wait for. God has promised us in his word that one day Jesus is going to deliver the final blow against evil. That's what we're waiting for. And the season of Advent, this season of waiting for Christmas is a good opportunity for us to wait and prepare for that second coming of Jesus as well. And here's what I want us to grapple with today. If we grasp the reality of Jesus' return, it will change the way we live. I want to say that again. If we grasp the reality of Jesus' return, it will change the way we live. See, Jesus' return is not just a belief we check off our doctrine list and then file away and move on. It really matters. And today we're going to talk about three aspects of Jesus' return, three facts from Scripture that that are going to change the way we live our lives if we really let them sink in. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. We're going to start there and we're going to be uh, going through 51 today. But we're going to start with 24, verse 36. And just to give you a little background on what's happening here, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus' disciples asked him for a sign of his coming. And chances are they didn't know exactly what they were asking for. They probably were thinking about an event that was going to happen in their lifetime. Um, and, and, but basically what they were asking was that Jesus, they wanted to know when Jesus was finally going to come, establish his kingdom, his reign as king, and when he was going to get rid of the bad guys, eradicate evil. They wanted some kind of sign of his coming so that they could be ready. But this is what he tells them in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So here's the first fact that we see here. Jesus could come back at any time. 
Jesus tells them no one knows. And that included Jesus himself. Notice it says, not the Son, but the Father only. And you might be scratching your head and saying, how does Jesus not know when he's coming back? Right? Isn't he supposed to be God? How does he not know when he's coming back? Well, when Jesus became a man, right, he set aside some of his access to the power that he had as God. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But when Jesus was a man, when Jesus came to earth, he wasn't everywhere. He was in one place. He was in Palestine. Well, apparently one of the things that he set aside was his knowledge of the day that he was going to come. And this is significant because he knew what was going to happen after he left. He knew that there would be people who would come who would claim to have knowledge of what Jesus taught, of what Jesus said, and who would say, oh, I know when Jesus is going to come back. Listen to me and try to deceive people. And that, you know, that actually still happens today. I was, uh, a couple years ago, I was driving down 294, and I saw this big billboard, and it had a silhouette of a man kneeling in prayer, and it had this, the words, Judgment Day. And then underneath it, it said, May 21st. And I thought it was a movie poster. <laughs> I had no idea what, what it was. I went home and I, I, I Googled it, because, you know, I, I thought, oh, this is interesting. It sounds kind of Christian-y. And, uh, and it turns out it wasn't a movie poster. There was actually a radio preacher, and a lot of you probably remember this, there was a radio preacher named Harold Camping who thought he had figured out from the Bible when Jesus was coming back. And I knew that that couldn't be right because there's no way this random radio preacher could know better than Jesus when he was coming back. But all these people got taken in. I mean, there were people who sold everything they had to give to his organization to get the word out that Jesus was coming back May 21st. And we're still here, so obviously he didn't. But according to Jesus, people aren't going to be expecting it when he comes. Let's read verses 37 to 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You remember the story of Noah and the ark, right? It's the, the cute children's story about the animals and the boat and the rainbow. Wrong. Well, okay, th- there, there was a boat, there were animals, there was a rainbow, but it's not a children's story. It's, it's an account of God's judgment against the world, against a world that had gone totally corrupt. And if we can avoid thinking about it as a story about giraffes on a boat, we'll realize it's, it's really a perfect reference for Jesus to make here. Because with the flood account, we have this picture of God's judgment on sinful humanity and his deliverance of Noah and his family. Do you see the parallel? The depictions of Jesus' return earlier in the chapter and in other parts of the Bible talk about the destruction and judgment of God's enemies and the rescue and salvation of his followers. But the point that Jesus is making here is that just like no one saw the flood coming until it got there, no one is going to expect Jesus' return. People are going to be going about their daily lives. Uh, look at verses 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Uh, these are depictions of people's everyday business. If it were today, it might be something like two coworkers will be working on a project in the office. One will be taken, one left. This past week after Thanksgiving dinner, I was, <clears throat> I was sitting on the couch after having eaten way too much turkey, and I was thinking, my mind kind of drifted to the sermon I was about to preach, and I kind of had to laugh, because 
I just kind of imagined what would happen if Jesus were to come at that moment. He would find most of America, just like me, sitting in couches all over in food comas, watching football. That's what he would find. We'd all, nobody would be ready. We'd all be kind of like coming out of our, our stupor and saying, oh, what, what's happening? We wouldn't be expecting it. And some would be taken, and some would be left. Now, you might be wondering what this language of taken and left means. Uh, Jesus doesn't really explain it, and scholars and commentators disagree about this. Uh, but some people think taken is God's judgment being taken away to punishment, kind of like the flood. Others think it refers to Christians being taken up with Jesus in the event that we refer to as the rapture. Uh, Bible-believing Christians disagree about this, uh, and I'm not saying it's not an important topic to think about, but it's not what we're talking about here. What we all need to agree on, based on Jesus' words, is that nobody's going to expect it. This is what we mean when we talk about the imminent return of Christ. You may have heard that word before in doctrinal statements and things like that. The imminent return of Christ means we know he's coming. It's been promised. I am more certain that Jesus is going to come back than I am that I am going to wake up tomorrow. Because I haven't been promised that I'm going to wake up tomorrow, but I have been promised by God that Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. So what's the implication for us? Well, if Jesus is coming back at any time, we want to be living now the way we want to be living when Jesus returns. Right? We should be living now the way we want to be living when Jesus returns. Read verses 43 to 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus tells his disciples to stay awake. And, of course, he's not telling them to literally not go to sleep until he comes back. He's calling them, and us really, to a life of vigilance, of watchful expectation for his return. And he illustrates this with an example of a really unpredictable event. I mean, how do you predict when someone's going to break into your house? How do you prepare for that? Well, let me give you another example. Many of you are in college, and I was in college once, and now I'm in, in seminary. But when I, when I first got to college, I made this amazing discovery. I realized that there was nobody there to make me go to class. I mean, I... Yes, I was paying a lot of money to be there, but if I didn't want to go to class, I didn't have to. And what's more, a lot of my homework was just reading. And no one was assessing me on that. And so I went through this period in college where I thought I could game the system, and I could just, you know, do half-decent on a, on a paper, take a test, and, and, and get by. Uh, but professors, of course, know this. And uh, some professors couldn't be bothered with dealing with that, but some professors actually wanted us to do well in their classes, and so they would do things like have attendance or, or reading reports or something like that. But I had this one professor in particular who had a very effective way of getting us engaged in his class. What he did is he told us we would have six quizzes over the course of the semester, and he wouldn't tell us when. And they would be at the beginning of class, and, uh, and so people would try to game the system. So if we had a quiz, the first time we had a quiz, there was a little dip in the attendance the next day, and he gave us another quiz. Because <laughs> people figured he wouldn't have two quizzes in a row, and he did. And so you figured out that it was truly an unpredictable event. You didn't know when the quiz was going to come. And the only way you could prepare for it, the only way you could be successful, 
was to do your reading every night and come to class. That's what you had to do. That's how you prepare for unpredictable events. By living consistently now, when the event happens that you're anticipating, you're going to be ready. And I think a lot of us have things in our lives that, lives that we expect we're going to take care of someday. Do you have anything like that? You know, I think some of us, some of us have been hurt. There are people in our lives who have hurt us, and we're still hurting. And there's someone we know that we should forgive, but they don't deserve it. And someday we'll forgive them, but just not going to do that right now. Or maybe it's a sin that you have in your life, something that's that, that you know is wrong, and you know you need to confess to somebody, and you know you need to ask for forgiveness, but the right time has never come up. Someday you'll confess. Someday you'll forgive. Someday you'll ask for the help that you need. Guess what? We're not promised someday. You have today. I've got a diagnostic question for you, and a lot of ethos groups aren't meeting this week, but if yours is, write this down, because this would be a good thing to talk about. If you knew that Jesus was coming back this year, how would it change the way you live? It might be your answer is nothing. And maybe you're living faithfully, you're doing exactly what God is calling you to do, and that's great if you are. But I think it's an important question for us to ask ourselves. And it brings us to the next fact that we know about Jesus' return, which is this. Jesus has given us a task while he's away. He's given us a task. Look at verses 45 to 47. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The image here is of a wealthy landowner who goes on a trip And uh, he leaves one of his servants in charge. He gives him authority to do the work. He gives him resources. And this servant is supposed to take care of things while the master is away. Uh, In particular, this servant is to make sure that the other people in the house get fed. So the master of the house goes away. He comes back. He finds that the servant has been faithful. And so he he commends him and he gives him a promotion. I wish that happened when my boss went on vacation. But he gives him a promotion. And, uh, and, And Jesus is anticipating the situation we're in now as Christians. See, when Jesus called us as Christians, he didn't just call us to salvation, although he did do that. He also called us to a life of meaningful work. Jesus is the landowner who ascended into heaven. He left his faithful servants, us, with a responsibility to take care of his household, his church, the people of God. He gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us the resources that we need. And each person's responsibility is going to look a little bit different. We've all been given different resources, different gifts, different abilities. But the Bible tells us about the things that matter to God, that we're to take care of, and we're left to tend to those things. Now, I know that many of us, and I include myself in this number, many of us are recovering legalists. And it's easy for us to think, oh man, i really got to get my act together because God's given me this job and I haven't been doing it, and I'm going to be in trouble when Jesus comes back. First of all, I want to remind you that if you are in Christ and the Spirit of Christ is living in you, Jesus is not going to reject you when he comes back, okay? We know that we're saved by faith. 
not by works. We've talked about this before. Jason has talked about how real faith produces real works. However, the Bible indicates that our work is going to be evaluated when Jesus returns. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. We're going to put it up on the screen, uh, so you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, But in this context, he's talking about the church being built up on the foundation of Christ. And it says this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. That's the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So so for the Christian, our concern is not really about salvation, but whether or not anything we've done while we're here is going to be worth anything. I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, um, my dad used to work long, hard hours at a paper mill to support our family. And uh, if I was awake when he came home, he'd come in and he'd give me a big hug and I'd sit on his lap and uh, he'd show me the biggest paper cuts you've ever seen because he worked at a paper mill. Um, and I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and, and I knew that he loved me. And it wasn't because of what I had accomplished while he was away. I didn't accomplish very much. He loved me because he loved me, because I was his son. If we're Jesus' disciples and we're trusting in him, we don't have to be sitting here freaked out that when Jesus comes back, he's not going to love us. Jesus loved you enough to die for you, to take the punishment for your sins and make you a holy people. But even though nothing would change my dad's love for me, it did matter how I lived while he was gone. I was really excited when I could tell him about the good day I had, if I could show him something I made in preschool. I was really excited to see him. I was less excited to see him if I knew that my mother was going to tell him that I got in trouble for mouthing off to her or I'd been misbehaving. And I, it wasn't going to change his love for me, but it definitely affected the way I felt about him coming home. It affected that reunion. See, I love my father. I wanted him to be pleased with me. And it's love that motivates us to serve God. Love motivates us to live faithful lives. We know that God loves us, and we love God, and so out of gratitude to him, we want to take care of the things he cares about. And since Jesus has given us a task while he's away, here's the implication for us. We need to be faithful caretakers of our resources. He's given us these resources. We need to be faithful caretakers of those resources. See, in Matthew 23, the chapter just before, Jesus just got done telling off the religious leaders of his day. Because they'd been given all kinds of knowledge and training, and and kind of like last week we talked about the, the Jews who had the oracles of God, but they were wasting it. They were so caught up in their own egos and their own little kingdoms that when Jesus, the king, arrived, they were threatened by him. See, just having resources does not ensure God's favor. God cares about how we use the resources. God doesn't care how big your house is. He's not impressed. He doesn't care how small your house is. He does care how you use it. I know a lot of you have opened your homes to ethos communities to make your living rooms a place where people get together and get to know Jesus better and learn how to follow him. That's being a faithful caretaker of your houses. 
This is why we put money in the offering plate. We want to use our financial resources so that the church can continue to preach the gospel faithfully in Evanston. And it's not just wealthy people. All of us are called to give of our financial resources to the cause of Christ. In addition to giving to the church, I know a lot of you give to other organizations that help the poor, that help those who are oppressed. There are hundreds of ways you can be faithful with your financial resources. But God's given us other things besides money, right? He's given every single one of us 24 hours in a day. How are you using your time? You know, those of you with smartphones may be surprised to find out, and and I haven't yet found the exact verse in the Bible that talks about this, but you might be surprised to find out that God doesn't care what level you've gotten to on Candy Crush Saga. He doesn't. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. There's a lot of things that we can do that aren't inherently evil, but that don't really matter in the long run. And, and I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't have that problem. I'm a Northwestern student. I have so many good things on my plate. I'm so, have you seen how busy I am? Have you seen my calendar? And that's, that's great that you're doing all those good things. I have a question for you. How's your prayer life? See, I struggle with this. There are a lot of good things that I'm doing, but sometimes it's easy to invest so much time in the good things that we miss out on the important things, the things that are really important to the heart of God, things that empower us to do all those other good things. Another thing we don't always think about that we've been given is influence. You likely are in a position at your work or school or home in which you have influence with the people around you. How are you using it? You know, we've got, a, we've got a man at our church who, who runs a company, and he and his wife use the influence they have in this company to, to mobilize this huge project every Christmas to help needy families. They collect toiletries and necessities uh, that aren't covered by food stamps. And uh, they see this as a faithful way to use their resources and also their influence. There are so many things we could add, so many things. The scriptures. As Christians, we've been given the words of life in the scriptures. Do you read them? Do you share them with the people who need to hear them? We could go on and on and and, and talk about this. The fact is, is that each of us have so much we can use for the service of God. We all have so much that we can use for the service of God. And I know that a lot of you are being faithful in these areas. And And I have a word for you. Some of you have been using your resources faithfully. You've been giving up your time to the church. You've been working so hard and you're tired. You've been doing the best you can with the help of the Holy Spirit and you just want to know, is there a point? There's a promise for you here. See, Jesus is going to come back and you're going to see the fruit of your labor. He's going to come back and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Keep on being faithful. God knows what you're doing. Someday you're going to see the result. But you know, Jesus' story doesn't end there. We're going to see a third fact about Jesus' return. And that is this. Jesus will put an end to wickedness. Let's read verses 48 to 51. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
This second part of the story is sobering. One of the servants sees that the master of the house has gone a long time. This isn't the faithful servant, this is the wicked servant. And in time, his evil nature comes out, and he starts to use his power to abuse the other servants. And he starts using his master's resources to, to, for his own pleasure. He eats and drinks and, and, and does everything for his own self-gratification. And the master of the house comes back. And the consequences are dire. The man is punished brutally. He dies a, a gruesome death. And, and if the metaphor that Jesus uses here of, of the man being cut to pieces seems a little gruesome to you, I, I want you to remember that this is talking about eternal torment. It demands a strong metaphor. See, when Jesus comes, it's going to be great news for the people of God, but it's going to be a terrible day for the enemies of God. That's the bad news we've been looking at in Romans. And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because we've been talking about that, but it is important to talk about. See, as we've been going through Romans, we've been talking about the fact that in our natural state, apart from Jesus Christ, all of us are enemies of God. And instead of giving thanks to God and worshiping him with our lives, all of us want to use what God has given us for our own pleasure, our own self-gratification. And it's only by the grace of God that Jesus received the punishment we deserved and changed us into faithful servants. So let's not be too quick to write off this wicked servant as someone who's getting what's coming to them. Part of what we're called to do during this waiting period is to help our friends and family and neighbors and anyone else we come across to recognize their need for repentance and trust in Jesus while they can. And so that's one implication of this for Christians. It's that we need to call people to repentance. Jesus' imminent return should be motivation for evangelism. I cannot emphasize this enough. Part of our task that God has given us as God's people is to let other people know that Jesus is coming back. And now is the time for repentance. The man who wrote half the New Testament, including Romans, the Apostle Paul, was an unfaithful servant. He was a wicked servant. He was actively persecuting the church of God, killing and imprisoning Christians. And God changed him. Nobody is too far gone to be transformed by Jesus. But sometimes, sometimes, it's really difficult for me to understand the wrath and judgment of God. I know that God can change people, but it's just really tough for me to deal with this issue of judgment. See, the love of God is easy. Everybody's okay with a, a, a loving God. But what about the wrath of God? And here's where it's, I think, helpful for us to recognize a second implication of the coming judgment of God, and that's this. We don't have to despair at injustice. What do I mean by that? In one of my counseling classes in seminary, we had to watch this video that was very difficult for me to watch. Different victims shared their experiences of people in their lives, people, many of whom they, they knew and trusted, who had hurt them as children. And the hardest part was the knowledge that some of these offenders got away with it. And I, I felt sick and I felt angry watching this video and, and I found myself wishing terrible things on the people who are responsible. A little later I read an article about North Korea. 
people getting rounded up in a village in a city because they owned Bibles and they were executed for owning Bibles, and their family members were sent off to labor camps. Stories like these make me angry, and they easily lead me to a dark place, and they can fill us with bitterness and frustration, and it becomes very difficult to follow Jesus's instruction to love our enemies when faced with sheer evil. Do you ever feel that way? But this is why, part of why, the doctrine of God's judgment is so critical. See, in the context of this passage that, we're re- that we've been reading here, Jesus is talking to victims of the wicked servant, people who have been beat up and oppressed by a corrupt Roman government. Even their own people have been taking advantage of them. He just got done chewing out the religious leaders who have used their, their power and authority to spiritually abuse their followers. A lot of people think that's why Jesus refers to hypocrites in verse 51. He's talking to victims, people who have been abused by the system. And you know, it's natural for us to be angry about evil. It's normal and appropriate for us to grieve. And we absolutely should do something. We do need to fight against injustice, to advocate for those who have been enslaved, to do what we can to protect the life of the unborn, to rescue those being abused. But when we feel like evil is winning, we don't despair. Because of God's judgment, we have hope. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's going to set things right. When someone gets away with a terrible crime, I know that one of two things is going to happen. Either that person is going to be transformed by Jesus Christ, and God is going to save them and change them completely so that I don't even recognize them anymore, or they're going to get what they deserve, what all of us deserve, apart from the mercy of God. If you find yourself carrying that bitterness with you, or you find yourself feeling hopeless about the evil you've experienced in the world, remember, it gets better. But only because Jesus is coming back. There will be justice because Jesus is finally coming back to defeat evil. And I want to read, as we close off here, a brief glimpse of this in Revelation 21, 3-4. Just listen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what will happen when Jesus comes back. This is what we're waiting for this Advent season. We know that it could happen at any time, And so in the meantime, we stand ready. We know we have been given a task. So in the meantime, we work faithfully. And we know that the enemies of God will be defeated. So in the meantime, we share the good news. And we have hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're coming back. Thank you that we have hope that Things are going to get better, that evil is going to be defeated. Lord, I pray that you help, would help us to really come to terms with the fact that you could come at any time. Help us to prepare our hearts to live consistent lives of discipleship. Lord, help us to know how to use our resources. Lord, give us the endurance to use them well when we're tired. And Lord, we give you the glory for what you've done and what you're about to do, and we 
We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, our coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.